Welcome back to another episode of For FinTech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. We're back with our friends at Empire Startups for what was supposed to be another wonderful AMA this week with Rian Horrigan. But what happened, I'm guessing, is what a number of you are wondering. Well, as the world has done, as many of you have probably done since everything has hit over the last few months, we pivoted. John, you want to explain a little more? Thanks, Zach. And sorry for all the listeners out there who are ready and waiting for a live recording of the show. It turns out there was an IBM cloud outage today that took down Crowdcast. So whoever said you never get fired for picking IBM, well, they were fired this week. But thanks for sticking with us because we were still able to have an amazing conversation with the silver tech sage herself, the founder and CEO of Kinder, Rian Horgan. So one of the questions I have for you two that I've never asked that um, probably predates my relationship with either of you is how how you two met. So John, I'm trying to pin I'm trying to pinpoint the actual date, but I was fortunate enough two years ago to um, demo the earliest version of Kinder at Empire Startups. Um, but like my, my relationship with Empire, that that kind of John probably doesn't know, is that two years prior I had actually met my first investor. Um, at Empire Startups, which was Anthemus. Um, and so I had obviously had a lot of respect for the organization um, um, as I was kind of going through my journey of transitioning from JP Morgan into startup land, kind of realized how important, you know, how important that ecosystem was that John was building. Um, and then as we were thinking about, like, where do we want to do our first demo, there was no question that that first demo, you know, we really wanted to do it at Empire. There's so many great stories just like that. I met my co-founder. I met my you know, CTO, my first investor, an angel, an advisor at an Empire Startups event. I mean, we always say fintech startups start here with with Empire. So that's an awesome story. Now, the other funny thing is that I was about to attribute it to Anthemus. So Empire and Anthemus have a fantastic relationship. And I was, and uh, Joe Williams, who I, who I think led the deal, we stayed close and, and shared notes and I was going to give her credit, but it turns out that I can take credit for putting the two of you together. So that's, that's a fantastic story and one that, that I'll certainly be telling for, for quite some time. And to close it out, I was actually in the crowd that day. So that was my first, that Welcome was the first demo, time. Yeah. yeah. So that was the there first time that I ever met you, John, in person. Um, Rian, we did not have a chance to meet, but I was just coming out of, and we kind of talked about this this morning, but I was coming out of my world of uh, retirement, robo-advisor, you know, 401k management from Bloom. And like everything that you were saying, I was just like hanging on to every, because I think it was like before you was, I forget the name of the company, but it's like the fractioning, fractionalization of car ownership. John, what's that company? It was Rally Road. Rally Road, yeah. So I'm yeah. coming off of this like, well, okay. I'm struggling to see how the average American benefits, but I, I mean, that's interesting. And then diving into kinder and like, oh, this is like a migraine level pain point for US society that we need to solve. So I, I feel like we all met on like a similar day. That's a beautiful background. Are you saying that owning a portion of a unique sports car isn't what's keeping you up at night? I will say that it's not an itch I've gone out of my way to scratch. It's not a problem I've tried to solve myself, but, you know, I, to each their own. There, there's no judgment. You know, it's just a... 
It's a different use case. Yeah, you're not 40 yet. He hasn't had it. He hasn't had an early or a midlife crisis. It'll come. Don't worry. <laughs> is that the is that like the 21st century version of a midlife crisis? We don't like actually buy the Porsche to drive ourselves anymore. We just buy a fractional ownership and then invest in it. Maybe that's like the fintech midlife crisis. I like that. I mean, maybe the transition is that I'd love to see. You know, I, I was extremely fortunate in in that uh, in that my father paid for for my engineering degree, but I'd love to see him retire with his own sports car. You know, it's been something he's talked about. You know, he doesn't have the posters on his walls anymore, like uh, like a teenager. But it's something that we talk about. I think around every Thanksgiving table, and you know, a pretty powerful powerful transition and the opportunity that that Kinder has in terms of a roadmap for for retirement. Yeah, let's dive into Kinder and specifically, Rain. I'd love to hear more about the why and kind of like what it was like transitioning from a an organization where you spent so long, like J.P. Morgan, into this new role of like fundraising and being a solo founder. Yeah, so I, I guess so. The backstory was I was at J.P. Morgan for seventeen years, um, so a long time. Um, was one of those people that had a new job every three years at J.P. Morgan. So every three or four years had bounced actually back and forth between New York and London. So it always Mm. felt like I was working on something new. Typically when something was broken, I was like sent overseas to help fix it, rebuild, then kind of shipped back to the States. Um, And in my last role at J.P. Morgan, um, it was right around the time when the marketplaces were really coming um, into their kind of you know first era on the financial side, so think Lending Club, Circle Up, um, SoFi, and it, we, it was at this moment where I think the marketplaces were realizing that you know, they they really weren't going to be true peer to peer platforms, which is how they had initially um, started, and that they needed actually institutional capital to back them. Um, and so I was sitting in this really interesting seat at J P Morgan where we had um, an alternative lending platform that was looking at different ways to um, provide um, credit. And so as we were talking with these platforms, here I was as a capital provider, um, having a conversation about how we could potentially um, provide, provide these aggregated pools of loans. But as I sat in these meetings, what I became intrigued with was the UX. All of a sudden, and and again, I was sitting in J.P. Morgan's alternative investments team. You know, typically what you would consider the most like complex or sophisticated investments. And I was sitting with these teams, and the UX just made what I had always historically understood to be these complicated products so easy to understand. And it was this kind of aha moment for me around how really elegant design um, can make financial products so much more accessible. And so this was like, this kind of started me like really thinking about, you know, a different way of delivering financial services um, uh, to customers. Um, so that was kind of going on from a professional perspective, but on a personal perspective, um, I'd always had this, um, I guess, privileged seat with my parents where because I had worked for JP Morgan, they had been always been very open with me about what their retirement looked like. Um, and I'd always had a fairly... Um, transparent dialogue with my parents around the decisions they were making and what they had saved. Um, And in this time period, the conversation shifted from the kind of potentially when might I retire to the how. And it was the how that really got me going actually at Kinder. And I I remember the exact moment I went to Barnes & Noble um, in the city and bought a 300 page book on social security. And And if you just have these moments and you're like, I... Like I, I read the book from start to finish, but I'm like, what's the probability that like the average American is going to do this? And frankly, why should the average American have to read 300 pages to like navigate this most basic 
retirement benefit. And, and by the way, it's not a benefit per se, it's something they've saved for, like they've paid into the system. Um, and, that, and that became the really the earliest um, kind of nugget for Kinder was as I started like scratching the surface, the first thing I realized was like, even for me, having been in financial services for 17 years, this stuff was complicated. Mm-hmm. Like you weren't setting up the average American for success. Um, I started trying to find a platform to help my parents. And I, I migrated digitally because I lived in New York. They were living in Colorado. And so digital was going to be the solution. And I started looking for something and I couldn't find anything. And something in me that day, and I, I don't know what it was, but that day... Um, when I couldn't find something, I started like on a piece of paper, like mapping out, well, like what, what is it that it's, that this customer needs? Uh, and that was like the very beginning, um, of what Kinder has become today. I haven't met a ton of people in the retirement focused world or even just focused on baby boomers generally that are like, oh yeah, UX is our competitive advantage. You know, design is our competitive advantage. Did that inform the way that you like built the team kind of off the bat? Did that inform kind of how you took those like zero to one steps kind of? It, it certainly did. I think like the first, um, and this I think about is like my, my education post JP Morgan, the, one of the first things that, um, I heard from a couple of entrepreneurs in the tech space was like, Rian, your idea sounds great, but you got to go out and do some UX research and figure out what their customer, whether this is just like your parents' problem or this actually really is a problem. And so at first I'm like, well, what's UX? So let's, let's start with the basics and like help me understand that. And then like help me understand what a design sprint is. And so I was very fortunate to get paired up with a really experienced UX researcher who took me on um, for a month and did my first design sprint with me. Um, and we did a series of user research and actually the earliest version of what we were working on like didn't resonate at all. Um, and out of that user research came, let's call it version two of, of what the, of what the idea around Kinder was. Um, and so I, um, because I got such great feedback that I was wrong in my first design sprint, um, it became like super apparent to me early on that like UX was really important. I think the second part of that journey, um, was when we started building prototypes and I heard experienced UXers saying to me like the patterns that they were seeing with the users we were testing with were very different than patterns they had seen before. Hmm. And as we like, un- as when we unpacked that, that they kept saying to me like, Rian, this is not like how a millennial like touches the screen or navigates an app. Um, and they're, they're focusing on different parts of the app that I wouldn't have, what I, that I haven't seen before. And so for me, like hearing these experienced individuals just tell me this contrast was this like insight early on that like this was going to need to be really important. Um, and so, you know, from the very beginning, you know, UX was a kind of an, was an early and consistent part of the team. Um, and, um, I think now is part of our secret sauce. I mean, what's interesting is in the last the four or five years since you started the business, I'd uh, you know nothing specific against your former bank, but as someone who's been in financial services for some time, UX is now widely accepted accepted as critically important to the business. But the leap, the chasm that they don't cross is that getting out to talk to customers. There's so much concern and trepidation to you know. Overpromise, underpromise, risk having a conversation with a customer and then disappoint them when they realize that, that you know your roadmap is 17 years long and you can't deliver. Whereas that's your advantage. Not only is are you UX and design first, but you're going and speaking and engaging with your customers. What was that? What was that just like for you personally to have to you know 
leap to that to spend arguably more time just sitting with end users than you ever so I, I think I think it comes down to the fundamental reality at a startup, which is you're starting with zero customers. So you really, really care what your customer or first future customer thinks. Um, and it's not to say that I didn't care about my customers at JP Morgan because I was always in a seat that was very customer focused. Um, but you had an embedded base of customers already. And so there was typically always someone there that would be interested in whatever the kind of new idea was that you had. Um, and so, but I want to, when you're building from scratch, you know, getting product market fit is so much more important, um, in those early days. And so I think that for me as a founder became really clear was, um, you know, really listen to the customer, um, under, you know, learn how to ask the questions in a way that you're not biasing the outcomes based on kind of what your, your, your hypothesis is going in. Uh, and for someone who has strong opinions, that's hard, right? That's, that's the reason I'm not leading the UX that someone else is because I, I do have some of those strong views. Um, but again, I think it's when you've got, you know, and still where we are today, like we, we have a lot more people we want to bring on as customers. And so your, your, your willingness to listen, I think is even higher. Yeah, product manager's jobs often to lock the CEO out of the room when, when prioritization discussions are being made. One of the things that's, that's fascinating is that in, in some ways you have, you have multiple customers and that you have folks that, are, that, are, that can see retirement, you know, whether they're about to retire, but they can, they, can, they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then you have the next generation, the children, cousins, nephews, whomever may have a vested interest, like my, uh, my, you know, my story about wanting to see my father, um, you know, retire with that sports car. How does, how does that play a factor? Do you see yourself as having multiple customers and, and does, does the voice have to be, or does the UX have to be? That's something we spent a lot customers? of time looking at. And what we ultimately came to the conclusion on is that the vast majority of our customers who are between the age of 50 and 70 are making the decisions themselves, or if they're married, they're making it with their spouse. Um, there are, groups of us that maybe have worked in financial services and maybe have a parent who's single who may rely on us more, um, where you see a slightly different pattern. But over and over again, we actually heard from users was that number one, they wanted to like have this conversation with their spouse um, or partner. And that maybe at some point, once they got it organized, they'd bring the child in, but they would refer to the child as, oh, my child who doesn't have a great job or my child that still has student debt or my child that's like, you know, during COVID living in my basement. And there was something about those statements that actually suggested that like they didn't feel that that individual was like financially responsible enough to be actually involved in actually shaping these retirement decisions. I know. So we did, but, I, but I think it's interesting because there, but there is this like you, um, assumption that like we want, and I think when you ask that question, probably behind that is like, can you actually acquire the customer? And what we've proven is that you actually can acquire boomers digitally. Um, you can acquire them through, um, you know, direct mail. You can acquire them through all the channels that you've acquired millennials through. Um, and, and frankly, a one generation sale is much simpler than a, than a dual generation sale. Um, and so what we really focused on is <clears throat> while we think all of us will be influencers to our parents, um, we're really building the platform, the language, the usability is really built for the 50 to 70 year old. We know at some point, um, that they will invite in a trusted partner. And so when we think about our tech stack, we've built the tech stack with the mindset from a product roadmap perspective is that we would have like, if you wanted to look, if your dad wanted to grant you permission to look in that you could look in. Um, but our primary use case is really people in their fifties and sixties doing this for themselves, um, and speaking to them directly. 
Yeah, it makes great sense. I mean, in, in my case, my I already have the uh, the spyware set up on, on on Dad's machine, so I'm That's not awesome. too worried about anybody yet. <laughs> So I want to take kind of a, a detour a little bit. I think that there's this conversation in the world of kind of retirement focused fintech and fintech more broadly, honestly, that it, it really is just a UX innovation. How, how do you kind of balance or think about the two sides of that coin? One being UX innovation, but also like product innovation and actually like the financial product that gets provided being a differentiator and a focus. So let me maybe start slightly higher level yeah. um, and then I'll kind of talk about um, the annuity. You know, when I looked at this space, one of the, the you know, there's, it's obviously you're moving from accumulation to decumulation. So this new set of decisions that you're making. But what struck me really strongly was that there was no one person or platform out there that holistically was helping this consumer make these decisions. So when you think about the set of decisions this consumer is making in their 50s and 60s, they're figuring out when to retire. They're figuring out when to take social security, when to take Medicare, what their retirement budget looks like, buying long-term care insurance, maybe selling a home. In that journey, they're going to the social security office. They're going on Medicare.gov. They're meeting a financial advisor, an insurance agent, a Medicare broker, a real estate agent, a lawyer. So you're talking about seven different individuals, websites, at the very least that they're talking to. Um, and each of those providers is um, hopefully giving them their best advice. But what you get is a series of medicine, which ultimately could be a really bad cocktail. Um, and so the starting premise actually for us is that you have this ecosystem of incumbents that have oftentimes really good products, not always, but oftentimes really good products, but they're addressing like a slice of the pie. And what this customer actually needs is a platform that brings all the pieces together. And so a couple of weeks ago, we launched our new retirement score. And that retirement score has one singular focus, which is help you understand how long your money will last. For each individual, it gives you a personalized projection on whether your money will last to 90, 95, 100. Um, and in doing that, we've pulled together lots of different decisions. So in that calculation is when you're retiring, when you're taking Social Security, how much your Medicare costs, if you're going to have part-time work and for how long, if you've got a spouse, all of their decisions, and it really pulls this together in one place. And so I think that the, the first thing that we realized was that you needed to be able to holistically pull the pieces together. Um, within, within that ecosystem, then, I think there are places that we're going to find partners and products that we're also going to build ourselves. So I put like Medicare as a space that like there is a lot of capital um, going after the Medicare space. And I, for one, I'm not an expert when it comes to the healthcare space. What I know is that healthcare has, is a huge cost for our customer, and we want to make sure that we're giving them cost-effective solutions. So that's a space where we've said, look, we're going to look for partners, whether it's Medicare, pharmaceutical, drug cards, et cetera, where we'll bring partners into our marketplace to help deliver solutions. But there are other places that we've said, like, we actually want to build the product ourselves. And that's where one of the earliest products we built was this retirement paycheck where we partnered with American Equity um, to build this no commission annuity. Now, I had no insurance background before setting out on this journey. Um, like many people, I probably saw the word annuity and I wasn't quite sure what to think about it. But when you strip back what an annuity is, it looks just like a pension and social security, right? It's guaranteed income, often with an inflation protection for you and a partner for the rest of your life. The problem is that many of those products, not too dissimilar to like derivatives, have got bastardized along the way with lots of complexity and really high fees. And so when I looked at the retirement income challenge that this customer had, if 
felt really strongly that an annuity was the right financial product, but we needed to figure out how to build a better annuity. Uh, and we were really lucky to meet uh, American Equity along the way, and they agreed to build a no commission um, financial product for us. Uh, and that's a product that we have a lot of conviction in. It is a it is a product that requires a lot of trust from a customer. So I think um, early mo- product market fit wasn't what we had anticipated. Um, but it's a product that when we think about serving this customer over the long term, we're really excited about the long term prospects of delivering this retirement paycheck to the customer. Well. Let's turn that back to, to, to UX and some of your positioning because one of the challenges with those financial products is that people don't trust them anymore. They've been opaque. They've charged huge fees. You know, there are infomercials out there actually just saying, be really careful about annuities. So as a, as a second or third mover where you're offering commission-free, completely transparent product, how can you build that trust back with consumers and, and how does, how's that reflected? Yeah, in, so everything in that we're doing actually within this new app, Silver, is about this trust journey that we think we're on with our customers. Um, so what we, have, what we saw in the earliest version of Kinder, which was a web-based product, was the customers were spending over 20 minutes in average session times with us. That's a long time. It shows really high intent to want to do research. That's huge. Um, and they were spending most of the time in the retirement planning software. Um, and what we realized was that this customer was on a research journey. There were a lot of decisions to be made, a lot of decisions that can't be undone. I'll give you a perfect example, which is Medicare. Um, the first year you get a Medicare supplemental plan, there's no health underwriting. But if you change to a new plan when you're 66, the carrier can um, do health underwriting. So that first decision actually is really important, even though you get this like annual renewal. Same thing with Social Security. Once you elect, like you've elected your Social Security, you generally can't um, unelect your Social Security. So what we saw was that this customer was going to spend a lot of time. Um, that the kind of idea of this like super short funnel that forces you to make a decision fast does not work. And so that's that's UX, that's product. It just does not work for this demographic. And so when we launched Silver, the app earlier this year, the the real insight there was we needed an ecosystem that this customer could do their research, could create their plan, could spend time with us. And and the genesis of the marketplace was all about trust, which is how do we help you save money on big things and small things? So if we can help you start saving on small things as you start to make bigger decisions, that we will then become that trusted partner that you'll make those bigger decisions with. Um, But I think you, you can't underestimate the trust journey this customer is on particularly because of the kind of finiteness um, of, of our finality of these decisions that they're making. Why did you decide to go silver versus Kinder Mobile or something yeah. like that? I'm guessing there was a thought process behind that. Absolutely. So, um, you know, our earliest version, Kinder, is a highly regulated entity, SEC registered investment advisor. Um, uh, it all makes sense now. License. You barely even yeah. need to answer the rest of the question. I, it all makes sense now. Yeah. Okay. But, but, like, it also, but I think like, what we also think about with the silver app is like this, like we wanted to create a brand that had a little bit more leeway to be a bit more fun and a little bit more... Um, you know, lifestyle based. Um, and so obviously the, the silver and the kinder, there's some connection there. Um, but really wanted to create this like brand that like what we know about retirement is that it's all about money, but it's not about money. Mm. Right. So you can't live your best retirement often without having a solid financial foundation, but we don't, but, but when our customers talk to us, they don't talk to us about the money. They talk to us about what they want to do with the money how they want to spend their time. And so the idea behind the silver brand is like, let's build like a real consumer brand 
that's like, you're a member. I'm a member of Silver. I've got the Silver app. It's like part of my everyday and it's helping me make good decisions every day. That's great. So catch us up. How, how's the launch been? It was, yeah, we was launched, April, yeah, we launched, time, in, the, we launched? in the early days of COVID and like, I think what's been, yeah, yeah what's, well, what's timing, been good huh? about that is that I think we've really met our customers at a time when they're doing um, a lot of work trying to figure out what their retirement looks like. And I think look, it's been an interesting journey because I yeah. think what we know, what we're seeing is our customers on average. Um, these, these are, these are customers who've been saving for retirement. They're in their late fifties. They have, let's call it like a, about a million dollar nest egg. About two thirds of it is in their retirement accounts and about one third in their home. What's really interesting is that this consumer, because of the way the market has rallied, doesn't seem to be feeling concerned about the markets or like the, the state of their financial assets. Um, I, my, my, I would argue that probably they're going to have a hard time selling their homes over the next couple of years, depending on where they live, but that's the, their home won't be as liquid as I thought it was going to be. But what we really see is this consumer, the way they're navigating um, their life, their financial life post-COVID is actually about spending rather than their financial assets per se. So on the spending side, about half of them have reduced their spending by up to $500 a month. Um, that might feel, depending on what your, what your spending is per month, that might feel high or low. But what I'll tell you is that number has a real impact on these, on these customers' um, uh, financial resiliency. So um, our customers, on average, would add two years to their retirement score. Um, so their money would last two years longer if they were spending $500 less per month. And what we see is that some of these savings that customers are having during COVID are savings that they can continue. Maybe not all of them. So it might be that you're saving money on gas because you're not driving to work or you're saving money on not dry cleaning. But there are other things like we've seen. I mean, and John, you've heard me say this at nausea. I'm like, I was a big believer in this consumer being digital pre-COVID. Um, they're definitely digital post-COVID. So, you know, they have fully embraced telehealth. Um, they are streaming, um, they are, you know, doing online shopping and, you know, you think about going to the movies or going to live sporting events versus having a Netflix and an ESPN, um, accounts, like real savings there that frankly start to add up over time. And so what we're seeing is this customer, I think the biggest aha for them right now is that they, they're willing to give up some luxuries. The one luxury they are not willing to give up is travel. Um, they may not be getting on a cruise Although my in-laws, I know, really want to get back on a cruise. So they, they may not be getting on a cruise as quickly as they were in the past, but they are, they're going to be road tripping across America this summer. Um, and the, like being able to travel is this, is their, like their greatest hope for retirement. And so that is what they are really hoping that when hopefully we start to see some resolution of COVID that they'll be able to get back out on the road. Um, so that, and that was, that was what they wanted to do pre COVID, but it's just interesting that what they're saying is, look, I can tighten my belts. There's a bunch of things I can give up. The one thing they don't want to give up is travel. I actually hear about that from, from my family all the time. That's the, yep. the bucket list. There's a list of places. And when you're 50 to 70 or, you know, in my, my, parents case a bit older than that they have these these things that they want to they want to cross off and you know right now savings rates are at a historical high income is actually okay. going into savings accounts it's not getting spent I, i'd love to hear what you think are we gonna is that gonna be elastic are we gonna are we gonna shift straight back to to spending or do you think this is the man i hate i'm gonna say it the new normal <laughs> I, hate, I hate myself for saying it but is are those savings rates the new normal? Because candidly, I could see 
I could see uh, my father traveling the world after this um, and just burning through yeah. a lot of that nest egg because he feels like he's been. So I, th- I think I think it depends on what happens in the markets. So I think this demographic, again, our cohort that has has this million dollar nest egg is feeling more financially secure than you'd expect because the markets have rallied. So I think if we all of a sudden see the markets down 30% and they stay down 30%, I think you're going to get a different response from this consumer. But what they're basically saying right now is like, I, I don't need to spend on as many luxury items. I, um, you know, can do more dinners in rather. And, and it's interesting, but they, they want to do more dinners in, but they're probably going to renovate their kitchen. So they're, they're thinking about like, how do they make that lifestyle at home uh, for the long term more enjoyable? Um, but again, I think they'll spend on travel and then what you do see, and I, and I, and we see it, um, through engagement with the app. So our retirement score allows you to make incremental changes. So you can change part-time income or you can change your social security election. I think what people are most surprised by is how part-time income or reduced spending actually impacts their score. And it's in that spirit of small changes can have a big impact. You are seeing this demographic really has embraced, um, you know, I'd say pre-COVID, this, you know, women in their 50s and 60s were the most successful hosts on Airbnb. Um, we're partnering with a company called RV Share, which if you're thinking about taking a road trip this summer, you can go on RV Share and rent an RV. But if you're our customer, you might actually own an RV and renting out your RV is awesome part-time income. Um, and so I think our customers are, are really thinking about, you know, how do they, whether it's their own human capital being like a, you know, an online teacher um, or working for a call center, you know, 10 hours a week provides um, great cash um, that you can put towards your retirement dreams, but also provides that kind of that mental purpose um, throughout the week, which a lot of people are also looking for. Oh man, my father's showing up in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan, in an RV is, uh, <laughs> is a nightmare that's going to keep me up for days. I, I, I imagine alternate side street parking hasn't really uh, thought about that scenario yet. <laughs> no, but that's when, like, when we were bringing about the marketplace, I mean, we joke, but like we've been bringing brands in like Road Trippers and RV Share who were really excited about really embracing this community. Um, we just launched a partnership um, earlier this week with Hippo um, for prescription drug cards for our customers. Um, last week, we launched a partnership with Matic to help our customers um, get um, lower cost home insurance. And so like, again, we think about all these digital brands that were often built to solve what was you know, perceived to be a millennial use case, but a large number of them actually are really excellent for our demographic. And what we really want to do through the retirement score is connect the dots, which is anything you do in the marketplace, our retirement score will show you how the savings from the marketplace actually are going towards a greater good, which is making your money last longer. From your perspective, who do you think is your biggest competitor? Is it like apathy? Is it the, you know, the financial manager? Like who, who is your biggest competitor in the space? When you actually like look at the brand of what we're building with Silver, there is no direct competitor. What you see is people solving pieces of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think whether it's apathy or doing it yourself, the spreadsheet, trying to pull it all together um, is like the more traditional um, competitor. I, I think when we think about brands, what you see is a lot of um, stale incumbent brands that were kind of the discount cards or the discount clubs of the past. Um, they don't really reflect the modern 50, 55 year olds. Like I'm 42 years old. So I'm not like that far away from being like on the other side. And I think about like, what club do I want to be part of? Like, and I, I don't get super excited by a lot of these incumbent kind of senior clubs. Right. And that's, um, that is something when we think about, you know, building this brand, we get really excited about. 
I mean, you're making it cool in a way that just hasn't hasn't but, existed. But these people are cool. Like, when did we start thinking that if you were 55, you weren't cool? Like, that's like there's this there's this um, narrative out there mm-hmm. that you turn 50 and you're all of a sudden in like you're declining, and it's all yep. about like losing things. And so, like the analogy I would give you is like I want to be like the Apple Watch rather than um, the like I fall and I can't get up um, bracelet. Right. And the, but the Apple watch has the, I've fallen on, I can't get up feature in it. But if you walk past someone in their fifties wearing an Apple watch, you're more likely to think that they're cool and hip than yeah. they're old. That's a great analogy. That's a great analogy. But when you have like life alert, like who wants to wear, like you don't want to go outside and like walk the high line wearing your life alert, alert bracelet or necklace. Right. That just, that just does not as a human feel like you're living your best life. Yep. Zach's been telling me I need one of those. For a I long have, time. John. I, wor- I worry about you slipping in the shower. You know, it's I'm I'm so far away from you geographically that I have concerns. You know, I'm worried for your health. We're multi generational. But, but like, yeah. I do think so. Like when we when we look at behaviors um, over the last couple of months, um, this this consumer has really embraced telehealth. Um, that's probably the category that they've embraced the most, and it's um, it's been for obvious reasons. But I I do think a lot about for the more active retiree who like, I think about my father, he's now coming to see me for uh, four or five weeks. Like he doesn't want to feel tethered to being able to get healthcare just where he lives. And so to know that he could do telehealth when he's visiting us, like that sort of like for, for the, for the active retiree who wants to be able to travel to get out in the world, I think telehealth will be really interesting to watch to see how this consumer uses that as a way to kind of free up, free up their lifestyle a bit. I've been blown away by the interest in financial wellness, in in silver tech, but it still seems that there are fewer entrepreneurs tackling these problems. And and I don't know what it is. Is it that the the go-to-market or customer acquisition is just daunting, that they're afraid that they're not scalable digital channels to be acquiring customers? Why aren't there so many more? Not that you're super eager for direct competitors. Why aren't there more? The first thing is you have to see the problem and believe in the problem yourself. You know, we have a a team of individuals that are generally in their late thirties, early forties, who are probably closer to this problem, whether it's through our parents or through where we see our lives going. And so you really care about solving this problem. Um, But it's look, it is, it's a hard problem. It's not like, I would tell you that, I mean, you just look at fundraising. It's not, it's not the type of business that VCs get um, off the off the cuff. So I think that there is a growing hypothesis around the opportunity for this demographic, but because there aren't these like proven playbooks that have played out over and over again, that you know when you talk with investors, they're like, "Oh, I've already invested in a company like this, therefore I see this pattern," and that pattern is really obvious. And so, yep. like, we actually think that part of our secret sauce is we built these playbooks but we're often describing the playbooks to investors for the first time. And so I think that, you know, that the, the, the financing environment, frankly, I think is more challenging than, than the financing environment for a millennial product, because you just don't have those reference points. Um, but look, I think at the end of the day, you, you have to find a group of, whether it's founders or early team members who are excited about building a product for someone other than themselves. And it is easiest to get excited when you're building something to solve your own personal problem. And this, unless you're hiring a team that's in their fifties, 
um, you know, you're more likely, you need to find that group of individuals that, um, you know, has a, a kind of a different perspective on, on the problems they want to solve and who they're building for. The venture investor piece of this, I think is really interesting and like digging in a little bit into personal capital's recent sale to Empower. How does that shift your kind of venture perspective on Kinder? When I, when I think about what we're building, um, I think about us really being at this um, intersection of like consumer health tech and fintech. And the reason that we're at this intersection is that the customer has to make all these decisions all at once. I think when you're a personal capital or a betterment or a wealth front and you're at an earlier stage, you can, you know, build these solutions that are tackling a piece of the puzzle. And obviously these, these groups are turning into platforms and are trying to be more holistic. I think for our demographic, it was really clear that they had a series of decisions they were making that didn't, they were not all like fintech problems, but ultimately they were like, they all impacted how long your money would last. And so we had to really think about like, how do you build that ecosystem? Uh, and that's where like our head of product as an example um, came out of the consumer marketplace space. So he was um, at the bump and the knot and at Refinery29. He was part of the early diapers.com team before it was sold to Amazon. Like that, like that consumer DNA was really important in helping us think about like how do we build this like brand that helps a customer make holistic decisions. Um, I, I do think like as we think about building platforms in fintech, you know, the, the, in the earliest, you know, let's call it 10 years ago, it was all about solving like a very specific narrow problem as those rails have been built. Like I'm, you know, I'm part of this generation of founders. That's probably, I don't know whether you want to call it John FinTech 2.0 or FinTech 3.0, but like there were, there were rails that were already built. Like I didn't have to figure out how to do account aggregation. Like I just signed up Quovo and then signed up Plat. Like there was a lot. So I can build a lot of the foundations faster than their early founders were able to. Now the question is like, how do I actually build like the holistic product that makes sense? And for us, we've leaned into holistic so that this um, really, you know, is, is solving this like life stage set of decisions you make at a life stage rather than being kind of just a financial app. Well, in some in some regards, I, I think of you as a as fintech OG, but in other regards, I guess probably 3.0. And the challenge of 3.0 is that is that things are cheaper. Some of the integrations are cheaper, and and there's an expectation of immediate scale, which just isn't a reality when you need to build trust like you do with a with a wealth tech product. But to geek out a little bit, you talked about you you mentioned a couple platform plays. It's hard to have a podcast without talking about banking as a service. What do you? From a technology standpoint or partner standpoint, what do you wish was out there? What could bring, you know, uh, silver or kinder to the next level when it comes to uh, AML, fraud, account aggregation, So when data. I think about how we've built the business, we've talked a lot about UX, but at the, at the core of what we've built is a, smart, is a software called SmartDraw which is our whole data um, platform. And this is our data and analytics. So it, it, this is the platform that powers the retirement score. Um, and so it takes over 3,000 data points to, to predict how long our customer's money is going to last. And so that's really, like when I think about our core IP, this is um, kind of at the heart of everything that we're doing. When we think about what's next for us, it's about how do we connect that data to these different financial decisions that customers are making every single day. Um, it is still harder than you would expect to bring on financial partners into the marketplace. Um, it's been really surprising. And so like, I don't believe that at this phase that we're at, that we should be building our own credit card and our own banking product and our own mortgage product. 
Um, but it's really hard to actually bring on partners when you're still at our stage. And so I think that's the place where, you know, we've partnered with people like, like a credible and a Matic as a way to help us really test and experiment. Um, but there is this constant scale challenge there, which is until you hit a certain scale, and you still are, you still find it challenging to actually build those products. And, and we're, we're very much of a mindset right now that we don't want to build everything ourselves, but it, it is this battle every day against scale is I think the, the biggest challenge that we have right now. Yeah. And that's part of the FinTech 3.0 challenge is the potential banking partners have been inundated. They're not set up like venture capitalists to screen and do diligence on thousands of companies and, and they really just can't scale to new partners. Hence mm-hmm. some of the platform plays that uh, the Zach may know a little bit about. Well, but I, I'm, I'm going to just yeah. like, I'm going to take a step away from the plate on the softball that you just tossed about <laughs> banking as a service and bond. I, I appreciate it, but I know we're tied on time. One of the things that's resonated the most with me listening to you talk is the humanity and it's listening to you talk previously in some of your other interviews, you talk about one of your values and I'm going to butcher it, but being a focus on humanity in a world of numbers. I think, I don't think I phrased it correctly, but I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Um, and just where that came from. Yeah. So you're, you're almost spot on there. So it's being human in a world that sees numbers. Um, and it it goes right back to that 300 page book on social security. Mm. Like, do you really think that someone should have to read 300 pages to figure out their foundational social security benefit? First of all, they've been paying into it. They've been taxed all along the way. So it's basically a, a forced savings program. And a lot of the decisions around retirement are set up either are set up either for the 1% and or the the most savvy decision makers out there. And it just, that for us was, you know, a starting premise of like, we want to, like, you've worked too hard to get to where you are. We don't want you to have to be a rocket scientist to make this next set of decisions. Um, And again, that goes back to, you know, how do you design, like, social security can be complicated, but does it have to be complicated? Like, how do we design an interaction that uh, makes it really intuitive and obvious what the trade-offs are? Um, And that, that, you know, again, it all goes back to the UX, which is, um, make, you know, give some guidance, um, think about where the majority of the consumers are likely to be in their decision-making and then allow the customer to make choice, but try to guide them to like a safe starting point. And what you find is that safe starting point is often where, you know, for many of the customers it is the right, the right place to actually end. It's amazing how much of this comes back to trust and listening to you, like listening to that answer, I'm understanding how you might have some employees that are just like springing out of bed every morning to solve this problem. Like it seems like a a really solid rallying call for the whole company. It it is. And I think, um, again, that's where I feel really lucky and fortunate with the team that we've built that, you know, this is definitely a mission oriented company. You're building for someone else. You're building for, we're building for our parents, pictures of our parents on the wall when you walk in, right? That's what we're building for. Yeah, it's it's hard to hard to slack off if you're if you're constantly reminded that your mom's yeah. depending on you yes. or whoever. I yeah. can totally I get that. Um, so the the last question that we like to end on is how can our listenership help you? Um, so we've got you know a bunch of fintech nerds of all stripes, bankers, people like John that sit in their apartment in Hell's Kitchen and do fintech things, investors, yada yada yada. What what can our listeners do to help you? What are you trying to get achieved right now? Yeah, I think the, probably the most important thing right now is, is partnerships, um, whether it's partners in our acquisition, in, in our marketplace or partners from a distribution slash acquisition perspective. Um, we are 
really excited that we can be a good partner. I think we know so much about this customer, about their buying behavior, about the messages that resonate, that I think it's a really good two-way street. So if you have either a financial product or a health or consumer product that that you think is relevant for this demographic, I think we can be really good partners in both helping you with distribution, but also helping you learn about this customer's behavior. We also think about... Um, you know, brands that have large, you know, large distribution bases where a portion of the customer base is of our target demographic and how can we help you build a stronger relationship. So if it's a company that has some sort of product that delivers part-time income, if we can help you, your customers see how that impacts their retirement score, that kind of solidifies the product that you've actually built for them. And so that, that I think is number one. And then on the investor side, we're always, you know, excited to meet with investors who are excited about, you know, what, what the opportunity is for, you know, a demographic that's the same size as millennials, but has multiple of the spending power is online, but just behaves differently. And if you're, if you're excited about like this new demographic and being part of a team that's really building playbooks every single day, um, you know, we're, we're always excited to have those conversations. Well, you and I need to have a one-on-one chat sometime later this week or next then, but that's a, that's a great answer. And um, we'll definitely share all your information in the show notes. Um, do you want to give a, a quick best way to get in touch with Rian? Yeah, best way is old school, which is email. So it's Rian, it's R-H-I-A-N at kinder, K-I-N-D-U-R.com. Awesome. Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you so much for taking the time and rolling with all these punches, Rian. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed this very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with Rian, John, and I. If you want to get in touch with us or join a future Empire Live, you can find Empire Startups on Twitter at Empire Startups or sign up for their weekly newsletter at EmpireStartups.com. You'll be able to see any new and upcoming AMAs and lots more fintech fun and fodder in there. If you want to get in touch with me personally, learn more about Bond, or just talk it through during these incredibly trying times, holler at me. You can get in touch with me via email at Zach at For Fintech's Sake, or if you want a faster response, Zach at Bond.tech, or reach out to me on Twitter at Zach Pettit or at For Fintech's Sake. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and keep that mask on.